I'm an Answer Man, episode 12, The Fire Scope, the first performance tool. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Diamond Answer Man Show, where our goal is to help everyone learn more about the world of diamonds and feel confident about those purchases, engagement rings, anniversaries, all those special moments we would like to memorialize. If you have any questions, you may email them to me at jchristopher at diamondanswerman.com. You may also leave a voicemail message private or otherwise, at 803-792-1326. You may also visit me on my website, diamondanswerman.com, and you can leave me a voicemail message right from that site. And uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast. It's a special podcast for me, and if you're looking for jewelry and or diamonds, I should say diamonds at this moment in time, I want to give you a quick update And uh, after that, I will talk about the first true performance tool, the Fire Scope. But uh, for now, let's talk about what's immediately happening in the world of diamonds. And uh, right now, if you are a groom, or maybe you're a bride, and uh, you would like a bride-to-be, if you would like to buy an engagement ring, or for that matter, a man-gagement ring, Now may be a very good time to buy a diamond. And the reason for that is, is that the costs right now um, are going down. And uh, diamonds from the stated price on the Rappaport Diamond Reports and some of the other sites out there, Polygon and those sites that uh, IDEX that uh, report the pricing as far as the uh, trading costs, that's before it hits the jewelry store. And uh, what they're talking about is how the diamonds right now are trading at a discount, dealer to dealer and dealer to jeweler. Um, And right now, one carat diamonds are trading at a discount reported by Rappaport at about 18.3%, so just under 20%. That's one carat diamonds across the board, and uh, that's a pretty serious reduction, even after the fact that uh, you know, that's what the jeweler buys it at. And so you should see that reflected in your price when you buy uh, from your jeweler. And if not, you should always ask for it. You know, that was the earlier podcast I had just uh, about two weeks ago, uh, Diamond Answer Man, episode 11. You know, talk about the basics, the simplest ways to negotiate uh, your best value, angles you can work. And, uh, you know, all those things talk about just comparison shopping and how to get the best value using your own cash and your own credit. Um, you know, so if you have any questions about that, please look up Diamond Answer Man episode 11. And uh, that's how to work your, your five best angles you can work to receive your best diamond deal. So take a look at that. But right now, the uh, the jewelers are being able to buy at a discount, and the dealers are trading at discounts, and the market is soft. So uh, that's the reason why the prices are coming down. But on the other side of that counter, the rough, so from the mine to the uh, polishers, the rough is trading at a higher price. And uh, that's really affecting what will eventually be available in the market to buy at Polish. So this is temporary. 
as we sell through these uh, available diamonds in the market, the, the price will adjust. And, uh, you know, could the diamonds go lower? Yeah, I could see that, that the market could go lower if the, uh, the market here in the U.S. continues to be a little soft, you know, through the holiday season. I could see the price going lower. However, for dealers, I think that could be okay. You know, dealers need to turn their inventory. Uh, dealers who own polished product that need to sell to jewelers, and for that matter, for jewelers to sell their inventory, they need to, they need to turn it. You know, none of, none of these uh, organizations are banks, and they should never think that they are. The faster they get it in and the faster they get it out, the better for them. Um, you know, some people, you know, some big organizations like the De Beers, the Diamond Trading Company, and all those, the Central Selling Organization, if we go back far enough, they like to sit on that inventory. And, uh, you know, so they could, they could sort of manage the market and there wouldn't be these crazy ups and downs. In fact, there are some people that are starting to complain that are on the polished side of the market that if De Beers were still in control, right, so they're, if their monopoly was still in place, that diamond prices wouldn't be soft like they are now. But now since we sort of have um, an aggregate, right, we have, we have several different organizations involved, countries even, involved in selling their diamonds and getting them into market, um, it's, it's affected what's available and it's affected the prices. And, uh, right now what's happened is the diamond trading center had their, the diamond trading company had their site and some, it's been reported. Some of the suppliers have rejected their sites because the diamond trading company, they believe was asking too much for their rough. And so, um, this will adjust. This is not a permanent situation. Uh, you could, again, get a good value today, and it may not be here uh, next year. Yet, 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 then again, it may be. It just depends on how what we do in this market. You know, we are, in the U.S., still the largest retail market in, in, in the world for diamonds. And, uh, you know, if, if we keep pushing the market, it will get stronger again, you know, so as far as the trade would be considered, it would be, uh, it would be good for the trade if they could sell through their excess polished inventory. Um, diamonds over the last several weeks have reported to be flat as far as costs go. So even though we saw that reduction, uh, you know, one year ago, over the last couple of weeks, it's been more or less flat. Uh, the most popular color and clarity ranges over the last couple of weeks, and I think that would probably, if we researched it even further, uh, would be the GHSI-1, uh, one-carat diamonds in all shapes. And, uh, you know, that would be a standard size and color and clarity range. There won't be, even though these diamonds will run generally at a, at a, at a much less per carat price of something higher, the uh, it's going to be harder to negotiate in these ranges just because demand is greater. You know, there's maybe a little bit more of this product on the market, but the demand is greater. If you have an excellently made diamond and it's in those ranges, a GHSI1, even in an SI2 range, uh, and it's a extremely high performing diamond, the price is going to be 
more firm and in some cases at a premium uh, comparative to something that's outside that range. You know, so if you if you're going to try to negotiate in those ranges, just be prepared that it's not going to be there won't be as much wiggle room, we might say. And again, some companies don't negotiate at all. You know, even though I talk about, you know, asking uh, some companies don't do that. So, um, again, if you don't know what your color and clarity range would be, what you have a personal preference for. I suggest you listen to my series on BPS, that's beauty, purity, and size. That's my own personal uh, selling and uh, a training technique for teaching people both how to sell and how to buy diamonds. That's the beauty, purity, uh, size uh, categories. That's how you filter all four or five, if you want. Your uh, color, clarity, carrot weight, even your certificate can be filtered in there. Uh, Beauty, purity, size, it will help simplify and help make you more confident in your buying decision. And, uh, you know, I've received a few questions uh, about what my wife wears as far as diamonds. And and my wife wears an FVS1. And uh, when I've talked about this, some people ask, well, why not a GSI1 or SI2? And my story's a little bit different than most. And and so I'll, I'll give that really quick. The reason why she has an FVS1 diamond is one main thing, I'm trained in diamond grading. And I have an extremely, extremely sensitive, uh, I should say I've trained my eye to be able to see things most jewelers and gemologists don't recognize. And what I mean by that is that I am, I am extremely sensitive to the performance of a diamond by its visual, uh, what you actually see in it. And I can describe what I'm seeing. And I can even, I can even look at a diamond and tell you, uh, what the polisher did to it to achieve certain effects or, you know, defects, uh, to the performance just by the way the diamond looks. Well, that being said, it also gives me the the ability to be able to see inclusions that most people wouldn't regularly recognize. And uh, so my personal preference would be for my own eye not to be able to see the clarity issues. And roughly speaking, about a 90-point diamond will have, if it's in the SI range, something from that face-up perspective in that SI range for a trained eye something you can see. Uh, a, an individual looking for a diamond may never see anything in a 90 point. Uh, when you get up into the one carat and larger range, it becomes easier and easier. It just doesn't necessarily affect, effect, affect, I'll mess that up, who knows, uh, the beauty of the diamond. And um, somebody will email me about which, whether it's the A or the E, I can't remember all of a sudden. That's okay. Um, <laughs> somebody uh, will have the ability to be able to see the inclusion or not see the inclusion just based upon their natural sensitivity to being able to see inclusions without magnification. And the same thing could be said about seeing color. Now, when we grade color, we grade color upside down. When we look at color, though, when we're wearing it, we see it in the face up. The performance. The performance can affect uh, positively or negatively what we see and perceive in that face up position. So that being said, uh, you know, having been brought up a little over half of my life now, working with a diamond, half of my experience in life in the jewelry industry, working with a diamond polishers, I had access 
to the uh, the uh, I should say access and the ability to create uh, different polishing uh, performance standards and different facet patterns. And early on, long before I became what I originally termed a diamond performance evangelist, right? I use the diamond answer man now because I'm a little bit more broad spectrum. But being a diamond performance evangelist, the original diamond performance evangelist, I had the ability to create facet patterns and then direct uh, them uh, to, I should say, provide the diamond and then direct a polisher to polish in that exact pattern that I provided. And the diamond my wife wears today is a specialty cut, round, brilliant, and uh, you you more or less won't ever see anything like it in 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 the market. And so I, I had did something really unique for her diamond, and um, it's it became something a little bit more special than just uh, just buying one, in my case, uh, since my wife is and was in the jewelry industry at the time. Uh, you know, her eye being trained for that kind of world, and then eventually became, uh, she became a polisher and a trainer at the 8-Star Diamond Facility a long time ago. And, uh, you know, so her eye is super tuned to seeing both performance, color, and clarity. You know, I, my, the bar was raised for me. I had to, I had to jump real high. Uh, you, not that she wouldn't have taken um, whatever I had chosen for her as my representation of, of my love for her and the engagement ring. But of course, at least in my mind, my bar was real high. I had to, I had to pole vault over the top. So anyway, so her diamond is an FVS1. It was my personal preference. And that doesn't mean that GSI1s or 2s are not going to be great diamonds. They are. It just depends on how you feel about it and uh, whether it's important to you or the young lady or, or young man that you're buying for, what they will see and feel and perceive in their diamonds. So remember, BPS, beauty, purity, size, and, uh, and that will help direct you. And that's on my website. You can see that on the right-hand side all the way down under diamond buying. And you'll see in the series, the beauty, purity, size, BPS series, you'll also see uh, diamond cut, diamond color, diamond clarity, and diamond carrot weight. Now, that being said, let's talk about the beginning in my world uh, for what became uh, the, the title I originally gave myself, Diamond Performance Evangelist. Um, and it starts off pre my uh, life, uh, my experience working for the eight-star diamond uh, cutting facility long before, long, you know, we're talking about early, uh, late 2000s, excuse me, late 90s and, and early 2000s. Um, my world changed when I was introduced to what what is called the fire scope. And uh, even though my world was was and is at that time was working for a diamond polisher and uh, running their sales divisions here in the United States, uh, I had access to lots and lots of different performance-based tools, you know, the original GIA, uh, the, the original scope they had for uh, cut grading, uh, where you put the profile of the diamond in the scope, you graded it based upon the ideal parameters, more or less, and uh, used uh, you know illumination from the back, and it would give you a sort of a, a shadowed 
um, outline of how to, it fell within those mathematical angles and parameters, you know, having had those. And then, of course, we had the, uh, the original loop. You know, the Russians uh, created a loop a long time ago that um, had a red ring around the outside edge. And uh, I still have one of those ring, uh, those loops. And uh, you can buy them. You know, most, uh, most diamond sales companies that have the tools, you can buy that same loop. And uh, I think it costs between 60 and $75, somewhere in there, maybe as much as 90 And uh, you can buy that loop. And that, that, of course, pushed me in a direction to look at the internal reflections in a diamond. And then I got involved with the fire scope. That's a much longer story. But the fire scope itself, with the research and, and studying I did, which took almost six months of belief and disbelief, you know, uh, waxing and waning back and forth what, what I could actually see in the diamond, the waxing and waning as far as my knowledge would be and belief. And it wasn't until I really started not just creating diamonds uh, in facet patterns, but actually envisioning what would happen based upon those little mirrors on the inside of the diamond and seeing what we had originally thought a diamond should look like, especially, you know, Lazar Kaplan and some of these companies like Kepi Kiger, uh, Lazar Kaplan, they all had their own little images. And even De Beers had an image that they had present to the jewelry community and diamond dealers and jewelers that they could use these images that were performanced and I'm using that term loosely because they did not use that term performance, uh, that they used as what would a di- an ideal diamond would look like. And that image was filled with, uh, it, was a, it was a beautiful image. It, uh, it just looked like a, a, a fractured pattern, unlike a kaleidoscope, where when you turn a kaleidoscope, everything is balanced, right? So when you, when you look through a kaleidoscope and you look at those mirrors and they usually have eight or 12 mirrors inside the, a kaleidoscope and you rotate that kaleidoscope and those little colorful shapes move around and then it, it bounces off all the sides inside the kaleidoscope and it comes back to your eye, but you see this sort of balanced kaleidoscope image. And uh, in the diamond image they originally shared with the world, right? Each company had one. It wasn't like a kaleidoscope. It was more like a fractured group of mirrors where you could look into it and the reflections were everywhere. There was no sort of a balance to what was going on. And you got to remember, you know, a diamond moves when we wear it. So it's not always going to look the same. However, when you have it in a static position, right? So if you could take that point at the bottom and and drill where you had a, a little recessed area, you could place that point down into it where it could, so the diamond would sit flat on something and look down into it if it's proportioned appropriately. And what I mean by that is a proportioned to the performance as is would be dictated by the internal physiology. Now, that's a lot of words there. The internal physiology to the diamond. Um, the diamond itself, if you look at the outside pattern, you know, there's 16 top mains and 16 bottom mains. They have bezel facets, um, halves, and all sorts of things that go into the star facets, all sorts of different facets, but they're balanced. There's eight or 16 of each of these facets that go around a diamond. And if you lay a pattern, just a line drawing pattern over the, over the top of one another, you will notice that there is a pattern that appears. And if you were in a static environment, if the diamond is polished appropriately, this pattern should appear. 
However, it had not appeared anywhere in the world um, for uh, ever, I should say, only because the uh, the desire, because the technology had been there, but even some of the tools haven't changed for just about you know a hundred years. Uh, so the tools hadn't changed very much, and it really took the human eye to be able to see and perceive it. But there had to be a tool that actually could show whether or not it was possible, and the fire scope was this tool. And uh, cutters were then finally able to make diamonds that performed based upon the physical, optical characteristics in a diamond. And uh, a diamond has certain mathematical parameters and, you know, the ability to throw light back to the eye a specific way. It's what we see and perceive as far as beauty. The fire scope was the first tool that actually showed us, right, our eyes, that it was actually possible. And the fire scope is a really cool tool. Now, it, now it has, you can't get the fire scope anymore. The fire scope was first created in Japan, and uh, then it was distributed here in the United States uh, for a short while. And then, of course, then they ran out of what was available from Japan, and then they started manufacturing what eventually became the symmetroscope. And then, because there really wasn't any patent on the design idea of the fire scope, Lots of other people started making generic versions of what that original idea would be. So you, could, you can go almost anywhere now and go on the internet and see an image, which may look a little confusing to you, but it's red and it's black and it's white, and they'll use it in conjunction on Diamond websites, and you look at that and go, what, what am I looking at? What is this crazy image? And what, what they're really trying to tell you is that they understand, at least in some degree, Diamond performance. And they'll use these images to, uh, well, that was hard to say, use these images to give you an idea that they have diamonds that are cut to this kind of standard. So, so the different terms that, that someone will use is fire scope, ideal scope, symmetroscope, light scope. I mean, there's all these different scopes. And uh, most jewelry tool companies, whether it be Stuller or Kessler or some of the different companies out there, uh, Rubin and Son, will have these generic tools one can use. Now, the cool thing is, is that other companies that, that would be called, in this case, laboratories, uh, have used this same technology to create, I should say, a more advanced form of what would have originally been the fire scope. And you can see this on uh, reports that would be from the American Gem Society. So they have ASET images or, or computer uh, uh, digitized images. But you can also, if you're a jeweler and you're an AGS member, you can get the actual photograph on the report of its actual performance. Now here I'm going to describe to you what it actually does. So you have to get in your mind's eye a flat surface and you got to remember a diamond, if we look at this profile, there's a point at the bottom. We're only talking about round stones at this point. Um, there's a point at the bottom, and then there's this flat little facet area running around the outside edge. And then there's this top portion, not quite pyramid, if you could cut the pyramid off at the top. You know, you'd see this flat facet at the top. And, uh, you know, so if you get this image in your mind's eye, the diamond outline, and you could take what you would see in a diamond and, and keep it in the ring-wearing position. I always say that. That means the flat facet is, is table up. You're looking down into it. And uh, what the fire scope originally was created to do was to show 
how well or not a diamond was polished or cut, depending on the term you want to use. And uh, if you stick a diamond in one of these tools, and some are more, you know, some are better than others. You know, just just so you're aware, there's differences in in, in how well these tools are made. And uh, the most important thing is you want to keep the diamond in a level position when you put it in the device. And uh, that will help keep your view from that perfect 90 degree angle if the diamond is level. But you would stick the diamond down in a plastic tray. And the tray has a, a drilled recessed area where you take the point of the diamond and it sits flat in there, kind of like how you would have it in a ring wearing position. Then you would take the diamond in its tray and in the fire scope, symmetroscope, or the uh, ideal scope, uh, what you would do is light scope, is you would slide this plastic tray underneath a loop. The cool thing about this loop is it was just a loop. It was a photo loop, and it was five power photo loop, and uh, on the outside of the loop, there was a flange that came down, and uh, the, the flange was colored uh, more or less, I would say, a pink kind of a reddish pink color and almost a fluorescent type coloring. And then below the, the plastic lucite tray was a light source, a plain white light source. And when you push the diamond in under this tray and under the loop and you turn the light source on, the loop would then, excuse me, the, the light source at the bottom uh, would then illuminate the ring, that sort of flange that came down of red or pink, uh, and it would it would brighten up, and then the diamond would act as it should in mirroring whatever's above it. You know, a diamond, the light should come in from the top, come back back out from the top, and in varying degrees and angles. And since it's static, it should have a certain degree of performance. And um, the cool thing about it is, when this flange was illuminated, the diamond would then see whatever's above. Well, I'm saying, I'm using hum humanistic experience here. It would reflect whatever's above it. It wouldn't see it. Um, and what would happen is, is that red light would come down, and it would reflect along the inside of the diamond and then come back out to the eye. And some of those reflections happened more than twice. Uh, three times, four times, five times inside the diamond and come back out to the, to the eye. And uh, the other cool thing that would happen is, is that the loop itself, the piece you look through, would have no light source at all. And, uh, and that would act as the viewer would, would be in the viewing position, and it wouldn't reflect at all. It would have a sort of an absence of light. And uh, the facets that were specifically supposed to utilize light from that angle would then appear black. So you would have this image that would appear. Remember, we have eight top mains, eight bottom mains, and those main facets then would be perfectly positioned or not over each other. And these eight facets should then mirror what's almost, not quite, directly above what the diamond would be, uh, but at a higher angle than what the red would be. So if you had polished your diamond just right, these eight arrowed facets would appear. And then the rest of the diamond would be flood with red or pink or very light pink, sometimes a dark pink and sometimes white. And then sometimes you'd see the dark areas, the black areas is what we would call them, in the wrong areas and regions of the diamond, meaning that the polisher 
did not cut the diamond for performance. The polisher polished the diamond based upon weight retention. Creating a heavier stone makes them more money. So we were all of a sudden able to put a diamond in a tool and then see what was actually going on. When we look at a diamond now, we were, we were able to see, wow, that diamond's really incredible. What makes that diamond so great? You could then slip it in this tool and bang, all of a sudden you could see, wow, this polisher really did a bang up job and making this diamond the most beautiful they could. And then you could take diamonds that had this sort of ideal parameter and they had this sort of fractured look and you could put them in there and go, oh my goodness, what were they doing? They do have all the facets on there. So if you count them up, they were all the right number, 57, 58 facets. They were all the right size. They were all roughly in the right place. But if if they weren't perfectly aligned, right? So you have caster and camber. Um, you have uh, twists that, you can, uh, that can occur when you're polishing a diamond. If you're a diamond master, what you've mastered to do is to look at the tool and look at the diamond, but force the diamond into a certain sort of, of, of specific parameters for retaining weight. That's what diamond masters do. Diamond polishers, expert diamond cutters, but artists, right? There are a few of these people out there that are artists and they make diamonds the most beautiful they know how. And it's characteristic of the individual diamond itself. And uh, these individuals, and they're all over the world, there's not as many as we would like to think. And there's very, very few, uh, I would say less than a handful in the United States today, um, that know how to and are able to polish diamonds based upon its internal characteristics and, and to make it the most beautiful that they possibly can. And with these polishers being artists, the time, the sensitivity towards how long it took to make something wasn't uh, as high pressed as it would be if production uh, took longer in a regular polishing organization. It's about how fast you can get it done and how much weight you can retain from it to increase the cost when you sell it. Um, and so when you work in a facility where it, it's about the art, of course, it costs more to make diamonds like that. So not a lot of people want to do it. That being said, so all of a sudden now you're able to see what is going on in a diamond. And then there's people who don't force the diamond into a specific set of parameters. They let the diamond tell them what it wants to be, sort of like how a carver will carve a piece of wood and a beautiful piece of art comes out of this wood, but they use the natural graining in the wood to come up with their, I'll make a joke, they're smoking Indian, um, <laughs> which is don't ever buy one of those. Um, so you, you you have this ability with an artist to actually release the internal beauty inside the diamond, and then a diamond cutter in its traditional form forces the diamond into a shape. When you compare the two stones, they don't compare, but they may have the same physical characteristics. It's the internal physiology that's different. So when you put the diamond in the tray you'll see a specific pattern up here. And that pattern is an eight-pointed star. Uh, you'll also see uh, a star in the center of the diamond when it's polished just right. And you'll see varying degrees of this. 
And then you'll see even in that outside uh, of those star in the center, you'll also see sort of an octagonal shape, like, like a stop sign appear. You'll see all the other external, or excuse me, the internal reflections appear. And then while it's in this uh, device, you'll also see different words that we sort of, you know, made up, watermelon seed, little little images that will appear, and those are all the characteristics of a diamond that's been polished for beauty and performance at its highest degree. So what does that mean, you know, when we talk about a performance tool, polished to its highest degree? That means a diamond that's polished like this, right? A diamond that's polished like this will exhibit its highest amount of beauty in all the different types of lighting environments. Because remember, this we're talking about geometry in a degree, as a degree, but most importantly, the physical optical characteristics, right? So we're talking about physics. We're talking about the optics of a diamond. And that's the technical portion. If it's just facets and patterns put on the external portion of a diamond, then those facets and patterns should produce an image if they're mirroring just right. And uh, when it does this, right, has the right types of reds returning, the right types of black colors returning, the right types of white light returning, uh, the right types of pink returning, you will have a diamond that outperforms almost every single diamond out there. And I think when we're buying something, we, uh, you know, we want something that's beautiful. We want something that's rare. We want something that's special. And, and, and it's one way we can tell how beautiful a diamond is without someone just walking up and saying, Hey, I've got the world's most beautiful diamonds. I've got, I've got the world's most perfect. This I've got the world's greatest that I've got, uh, you know, it's a sales, uh, sort of pitch, or maybe it's a trademark, and uh, there are companies who own trademarks um, with perfect and perf- not necessarily performance, but perfect and beauty and and uh, all those different terms like that. Um, and so they, those are owned trademarks, and they use those to sell their diamonds, and their and their salespeople will use those to ro- romance the situation. But how do you know? How do you know? how well a diamond is cut. And one of the ways you can do that is shopping with a jeweler that has one of those tools, whether it be an actual fire scope, whether it be a symmetroscope, whether it be an ideal scope, or even uh, an ideal loop, or in the case of some of the AGS color grading schemes, um, uh, not color grading, but the color grading analysis that the ASET produces, maybe it's multicolor, but Make sure you buy from a jeweler who has a tool that you can look put the diamond in that will grade its actual performance. And you will feel more confident about your buying decision because you'll be able to see what's going on inside the diamond and then you'll know that what you bought will perform the way you feel it should. And uh, you'll have the most confident buying moment you possibly can. And it's so simple. It takes two seconds to stick a diamond in one of these devices. So make sure you shop with a jeweler that uses one of these tools. If they don't have one, maybe you tell them about it. Tell them to, tell them to pull up Stuller. Tell them to pull up uh, Kessler, which is Cy Kessler. Tell them to go to Rubin and Son. Tell them to go to one of these sites that has... Uh, tell them to call up their, their tool company, whoever they buy their tools from. And I guarantee... They have a variation of one of these tools. If they're an AGS member, they will have access to the 
ASET, which is the next generation of what would be the FireScope. I'll talk about the ASET a little bit later. Um, but make sure at a minimum they have a tool that will allow you to put it in there. And we're talking about the technical. We're getting away from the romance right at this moment of time. We're talking about the technical. Since most diamonds are now sold today based upon that technical, it's not as romantic and fun to do this, but you can stick the diamond in there and you can go, wow, I can see that. And then you pull the diamond out, you can see it with your unaided eye and you can enjoy it. And I, I more or less describe it like um, you know, some people, uh, some people have this, a taste for wine. You know, I lived in the wine country for a long time. Some people have a taste for wine because they have an awareness of what wine, good wine should taste like. And other people just want a box of wine. And it may be that they haven't been trained or taught, or maybe they've never tasted good wine, right? And uh, I, I, I don't drink wine personally, but I'm, I'm using this as, a, as an example. And uh, when they have first experienced what good wine should be, there's at times a shock to the system. Wow, what is this? And then the, uh, the wine expert Forgive me, I don't know their titles. Um, the wine expert, I guess it's sommelier, or if, if I get that word wrong, um, <laughs> let me know. Um, we'll let them know what kinds of flavors and the smells will go into good wine, and then you tune your palate to what it would be. Some people even believe you have to have a specific shape of glass, believe it or not, to be able to to be able to taste and smell, so it's about that perception, the true uh, flavor of wine, and so it goes even further than just tasting it. And uh, so a diamond is the same thing. We want to make sure we make a confident buying decision, so we feel good about our purchase. And one of the tools we should always try to use would be a variation of what originally was called the fire scope. And, uh, and again, that will help us see and perceive. And then if we don't care, maybe we look at it in there and we go, oh, I don't care. You know, that's okay too. Maybe what's more important to you is the rarity of color, or maybe it's the rarity of size that's more important to you. So a purity factor could be more important or the size may be more important, but at least now you know. And so if you're going to be shopping, I suggest Again, working with a jeweler that is aware of this performance uh, uh, guideline is not just aware, but has the tools in-house to show you uh, how the diamond is performing. And uh, if they don't have it, maybe they're an AGS store that sells diamonds that have the ASET image on them. And that ASET image is a multicolored image. And I'll, again, I'll talk about that a little bit later. And that's a performance uh, parameter also. And it will show you actually how the diamond should, in theory, perform with all the light that will come out from the ceiling, the lights uh, that you'll have, whether it's ambient or direct. The uh, performance tools are absolutely fantastic. Now, some people are going to ask, well, what about a hearts and arrows viewer? And I do have, uh, I, I will have in my next uh, podcast, we will talk about the hearts and arrows viewer. And the hearts and arrows viewer is a decent tool to use. But it's nowhere near the same kind of information and it's nowhere near the same kind of performance 
tool that the FireScope and its generic variants would be. And I'll talk about the whys behind that and uh, what it takes to really have, I'll compare the two, the comparison between tools that are generic, uh, the ASET, the LightScopes, the FireScopes, the Symmetroscopes, and the Hearts and Arrows viewers, because there's a ton of companies that make those, and, uh, and how they compare. So you can take diamonds and grade them under both tools, but the true, true performance analysis would be in one of those variants of what would be the FireScope. And anyway, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. This again is Diamond Answer Man, episode 12. If you've got any questions, please go ahead and call them in to my hotline at 803-792-1326. I do understand that uh, some of the questions may be of a sort that you don't want to have your name put with them uh, because, you know, this is a secret. Maybe you're buying an engagement ring or again, if you're buying a man engagement ring, maybe you don't want your name out there for your exact question. Well, I'm not going to try to sell you anything. I pay for this whole broadcast, this podcast and the website out of my own pocket. And uh, I, I don't uh, get paid for it. Now, well, I shouldn't say that. If you click on any link, you know, I do have links to Kindles and I do have links to different books for jewelers to buy. And I do have different links to a couple of different websites. If you do click on those and decide to buy from those sites, I do make a commission off of that. That just helps supplement the site. Um, you know, there's no question that there's nothing wrong with you taking any of those links. I'm just making sure that you're aware that if you do, I might make a commission on it, and I'm very thankful for that. However, if you have any questions about uh, your diamond purchase, call them in to me, or you may email them to me at jchristopher, that's J-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R, at diamondanswerman, that's all one word, dot com. And if your question is of a sort that you'd like to keep private, I will then only use your exact question and not your name, and uh, I'll use that in a future podcast. Now, if you have more than one question, you can go ahead and email me the questions one at a time, and that'll help me simplify both answering and uh, make sure that I give you good answers at a time. It's quite difficult to answer four questions in a, in a podcast, and just based upon the time. If you'd like to do that, you may also, you can call them in to me at 803-792-1326, and if you'd like, I'll happily use your question during the podcast. Just let me know during the uh, during leaving the message whether or not you'd be willing to do that. And um, there's also a way to contact me from my website using my voicemail tool that's on the right-hand side. You can click that link, and if you've got uh, a, a microphone on your computer or even from your phone or tablet, whatever you may use, you can go ahead and leave me a message right directly from the site, and I will get that question, and I will happily use that question in future podcasts. My name again is Jay Christopher Gertz, the Diamond Answer Man, and this is the Diamond Answer Man Show, episode 12. 